0: Numbers chapter 16, we'll be looking at verses 41 through 50. Uh, In chapter 16, we saw that God created a new punishment, a new penalty for Korah and his followers, where the earth actually opened up and swallowed them whole, all of Korah and all of his belongings. And Korah and his family all went down into the pit, and then the earth closed back over them. It was like a giant sinkhole with a lid, and God was the lid. It's our desire to bring closure to a person's life when they die, and thus we have funerals. Catastrophes happen around the world, tornadoes, hurricanes, airplane crashes, and we search for those bodies to bury, even search for part of a body to bury and bring closure to a life. Now think, Cora and his family are consumed by the earth. The earth opens up, swallows them whole, And there is no evidence whatsoever of Korah and his family and all his belongings. They're simply now a memory. There's nothing left of them. And Korah is a terrifying example of God's power in judgment concerning willful sin. Korah and his group willfully sinned against God. And then God, having consumed Korah in the pit, he brings down fire and consumes the remainder of the 250 rebels. And there is not one single survivor among those that came against Moses and Aaron. It's an awesome display of God's power to create not only good things, but God can create penalties for sin and rebellion, as he did with Korah. But the good news is, tongue in cheek, Israel has learned their lesson. No, they haven't. <laughs> they have rebelled against Moses and Aaron, God's chosen. And it says, we're going to pick it up in verse 41. And on the next day, after all of this destruction and killing, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Now it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned towards a tabernacle of meeting, and suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a censer and put fire in it from the altar and put incense on it, and take it quickly to the congregation, through the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded, and he ran into the midst of the assembly, and already the plague had begun among the people. So he put the incense and made atonement for the people, and he stood between the dead and the living, so the plague was stopped. Now when they died in the plague... There were 14,700 besides those who died in the Korah incident. So Aaron returned to Moses at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, for the plague had stopped. The very next day, not a year, not a couple months, the very next day, all the congregation of the people murmured against Moses and Aaron. The people, they blame Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed all the people of the Lord. When in fact, it was the death of Korah and his followers was a result of their own sin. God even created a new punishment, a new penalty for their sin. And we see the wrathful side of God, the judgmental part of God's character... So openly displayed there for an example for all of the nation of Israel. Now today we live in what we call a dispensation of grace, the age of grace. And those who have experienced God's grace and forgiveness can sometime begin to think God does not judge sin. There is yet a future time when God's wrath will be poured out upon this world and it's called the Great Tribulation. Tremendous wrath poured out by God himself upon sinful man. We read that in the days of God's wrath, if they were not shortened, all of human flesh would be consumed. But the congregation of Israel in the wilderness, they're quick to murmur, quick to complain against Moses and Aaron. In fact, it was the very next day. They're complaining. And well over 250 leaders along with Korah have just been destroyed. These were tribal leaders. There was leaders from every tribe there. So every group of people in the congregation has seen their leader destroyed. Yet the people have the audacity to murmur and complain. You would think there would be a little fear there. You know, they have just witnessed a tremendous destruction among their own people. And God hears their complaints. Never think that God doesn't hear not only your prayers, but your complaints. And suddenly, the cloud of God's glory appears before the tabernacle. Complaining Israel now faces God who is angry with them. The great patience of God is short right now. The people complain, instant judgment. God tells Moses and Aaron, get away from this people. Get away from this congregation. I want to consume them. That's something to fear. And Moses and Aaron, they show their greatness by they fall on their faces before God in prayer. They didn't say, God, you've got every right (laughs) to destroy them. No, they're pleading and interceding for the people. But God's wrath has already begun among the people. Aaron, with his censer, runs into the midst of the congregation to atone for the people. But God's plague, having begun... Aaron now stands between the living and the dead. And God has already killed over 14,000 of them. He's killed 14,000 before Aaron can get out there and stand to make atonement. But Aaron's doing what a good priest is supposed to do. He is standing between God and the people. And so Aaron is doing his priestly duties. We can read of how the earth opened up and swallowed men alive and a plague from God, killing 14,700. And we can begin to think that this is the God of the Old Testament, not our God of today. But Hebrews has something to say about that. Hebrews tells us Jesus Christ, New Testament. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday Today and forever. We're blessed to live in the age of grace. God chooses to deal with mankind through grace now since the cross versus the law. But I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 6 and we'll look at verses 6 through 10. And this is a New Testament warning That goes out to to everyone, really. Galatians 6, verses 6 through 10. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will also reap from the flesh corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. Verse 6. It's one of my favorite verses. You would think it would be. You who are taught the word are to share in all good things with your pastor. That's what it says, almost. (laughs) And there is nothing better, in my opinion, to come in here and eat of our morning break cookies and cakes or even come to our potlucks. Ladies, there's a message here. Whenever you're baking perhaps an apple pie, make two. One for yourself and your family and one for your pastor. That's only right. Well, that's my interpretation of verse 6 anyway. But seriously, let me draw your attention to do not be deceived. To be deceived is to be led astray. Or it can mean to be willfully ignorant of the truth. Now, any of us, if not walking in the spirit, can be led astray. We can be deceived. Satan works overtime to deceive us. But to be willfully ignorant means you're not into God's word. You're not having God's word come in and cleanse your mind and cleanse your thinking. The Apostle Paul in verse 7, he tells us, do not be deceived. That's easy to say, not so easy to do sometimes. The disciples, when they were with Jesus, they were boasting about how beautiful the temple was. And they were just outside of the temple mount. And they, they're they told by Jesus... Not one stone will be left upon another. Now, we have to understand the mindset of the disciples and all of Israel, for that matter, at this time. The temple was not only where the people worshipped God. It was their culture center. It was their hub of everyday life there in Jerusalem. Jewish people would make pilgrimages from all over Israel, even to other countries, To come to Jerusalem just to worship at the temple. And there was daily activity in the temple. The temple sacrifices were going on. There was commerce going on in the outer court. You could even probably do some uh, shopping there. The temple was set high on the mountain. And whatever direction you approached Jerusalem from, you went up to Jerusalem. And... The temple would glisten, the white marble would glisten in the sunlight, and it was a beautiful thing to approach. And any Jew was particularly proud of their temple, including the disciples. And now Jesus is telling his disciples... Do not be deceived. This temple will fall. There will not be one stone left upon another for you to look upon. So the disciples, they have a question. When and how are you going to have all this happen, Lord? And Jesus then gives them his end time sermon. And he begins with this end time sermon. Do not. Be deceived. Take heed that you're not deceived concerning the end of the age. And uh, sometimes read Matthew 24 and Luke 21. It's a good study, the end time study. But here in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, God does not want us, his people, to be deceived about his character. God wants us to know what he's like in every circumstance. And then we read, God is not mocked. God is not mocked. Then another declarative statement. For whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. And we have what we call little axioms, little pithy sayings about this verse and we say things like what goes around comes around or we live by the sword or die by the sword we even say things well he only got what he deserved and God is telling us so to the flesh live after pleasure only consider the here and now don't give any thought to the eternal things, and then you will have corruption that awaits you. That, my friend, is being deceived. Excuse me. Ugh, gotta have a drink here. Verse 8: We're told, live after the Spirit of God. That person will of the Spirit of God reap or enjoy everlasting life. And that's what God wants for us. He wants us to have everlasting life, joyful everlasting life with Him. But now I want you to shift your thoughts back to number 16. God has judged Korah and his followers The very next day, all the congregation murmured against Moses and Aaron, and they're blaming them for God's judgment on the sin of Korah. Moses, the day before, the very day before, declared to the people, you are gathered against God. You are coming against God. And now the people are blaming Moses when in fact these people mock God. They mock God for his deliverance and his provision for bringing them out of Egypt. Mock is not a word that we use a lot nowadays, but to mock is to ridicule. A very rebellious thought, much less An accusation against the character of God. We don't have to defend God in his character. He is very capable of defending himself. But this congregation knows that they cannot ridicule God. So what do they do? They ridicule and turn against Moses and Aaron who are God's chosen And God's anger burns hot against Israel. And God tells Moses, Get away from these people that I may consume them in a moment. God is patient with mankind. I appreciate God's patience with me personally. One of the great attributes of God towards me, his patience. And he tells them, I'm done with them, Moses. Get away from them. I'm going to consume them. And then God declares that he will not be mocked or ridiculed by people, especially, don't miss this, his own chosen people, the ones that should know him, he will not allow them to mock him or ridicule him. And murmuring and complaining declares, God has lost control of this situation. Look around you. That's all murmuring and complaining is. We are to be very careful not to complain about the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Because they could be God-directed you see god will take you through a lot of things and some of those things are going to be hard things and tough things to build character into you don't find yourself murmuring and complaining about a trial that is from god that's dangerous ground the plague among israel it has begun and moses sent aaron he said go into the midst of the people take a censer with you And make intercession for the people. But before Aaron can get there, 14,700 people have died before the plague is stopped. The failings of Israel out in the wilderness, they're recorded as an example for us as what not to do. Sometimes the best example is a bad example. Don't do that. Paul here in Galatian, he tells us, God is not mocked, nor is God going to allow you to ridicule him. And we are told of behavior not to do. And then Paul gets in, he says, rather, here's the alternative, rather so to the spirit. So let me read again verses 9 and 10 of Galatians 6. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. There's an alternative. We can do good. Do not grow weary of doing good. And we can. We can start to look for the thank yous. And we can grow weary. Nobody appreciates anything I do, no matter how hard I work. And we can begin to murmur and complain. But when we're given an opportunity to do good, Paul tells us, do good. And we do good. Most of us do good to those we love, like our families. And we're supposed to love and support our families and do good for them. But the emphasis of this verse is placed upon doing good to those of a household of faith. Loving and taking care of our families. The world. We see the world doing that. And we're to do that. We're to take care of our families. But if we're going to be obedient to Scripture, we're to look around those that are around us and see that God has called us to take care of the body of Christ. That is a command. We are to love one another. Romans 12.10 Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. We should be filled with compassion for the body of Christ. Because when you're filled with compassion, it will bring forth behavior that is good. When we look upon the household of faith and we see a need, it should be automatic in our hearts to fill that need, if at all possible. When we have compassion for one another, the natural response is to meet that need. 1 John three seventeen and 18. But whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. John, the beloved apostle, writes, We do not have the love of God in us if we are not sharing With the body of Christ. It's that simple. The evidence of us being in the body of Christ. Is that we share and take care of one another. It's pretty simple. All of my charitable giving. Is centered and directed towards Christians. Whether it's a ministry a missionary group, or individuals. I want to be taking care of the body of Christ with what little funds that are going through my hands. As the church, as part of the body of Christ, we have the opportunity to bless the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, we want to continue to do good for fellow believers. That is what we're called to. It's a higher call than that that goes out to the world. The world does take care of their own. We see it all the time. But we're called to take care of one another. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer.